Well, we are in the uh, second Sunday of Advent today in the middle of our Christmas celebration. And uh, this year we are using the carols, some specific carols of the season, as a focal point to help us center in on the one uh, that the season really is about. So I hope that you're finding that helpful in, in helping you to turn your attention toward Christ. And so today... Uh, to introduce the carol that is uh, the one that we are using today, I will tell you this as kind of the backstory on it. That in uh, the 1740s, there was a movement afoot in England. It was called the Jacobite Rebellion. It was an attempt on the part of uh, English Catholics to try and get a Catholic monarch on the throne of England. Uh, they failed. And that was going to be a very costly thing for them because they did not succeed in getting the person installed that they wanted to. They suddenly were a very much persecuted people. And so in the mid-1740s, there was this massive exodus of Catholics out of England trying to escape the persecution and real threats to their lives and their safety. And one of those who fled in 1745 was uh, just a common man by the name of John Francis Wade. He was uh, a scribe by trade. He was a fairly educated guy, but uh, not particularly wealthy. And uh, when he relocated to uh, Douai, France, he spent some time working there in a school. It was a school for English Catholics who had fled over to France. And he wound up teaching music there, though that was not his primary trade. He was educated in music, and, and part of what he did as a scribe was to transcribe music. And so well, in the time that he was teaching music there in France, he began to write some masses for the Catholic services. It was just a sideline thing for him because he was a layman. And of the masses that he wrote, sometimes he would uh, actually write, he would pen new music for those masses. And every mass that he wrote had one theme, sometimes underlying and sometimes very overt. And there, there was this theme of pilgrimage and specifically uh, it was a call for Catholics to be able to return to their homeland in England, these English Catholics, to be able to go home to serve the Lord and live out their lives in their homeland. And so there was always this theme of pilgrimage in those. Well, there was one particular song that he wrote with which you are very familiar today, even though it's been more than 250 years since then. And this song is a Christmas song that is about pilgrimage. It, it is a call for people to come to uh, the place of Christ's birth and to worship him there. But it's set in a bigger theme of, of pilgrimage, as you can understand. And if you could read the whole Mass that he had written, the whole thing was about pilgrimage. The whole context was about the people of God being able to return to their home. And, and so that was very much the center of this thing. Well, in the course of Wade's life, the song wasn't all that well known. It was something that the, just the Catholic Church in that area used. But shortly after his death in 1795, the song was passed on to the, uh, uh, the Portuguese chapel in London where the Duke of Leeds got hold of it. He, he led a well-known choral group. And when he heard this piece of music, he was so moved by it that he taught it to his choral group. And because of their travels and their notoriety, the song just very rapidly spread literally around the world. It, began to, it was written in Latin, and it began to be translated into other languages. It wasn't until 1841 that it was finally translated by an Anglican priest into English. And here we are today, some 170 years later. There are more than 100 versions of this song in English. Uh, people sort of changing up the wording. Now, when he wrote the song, Wade wrote it with four verses... And uh, chances are you have never heard the second verse to the song. It's very, very unusual. I'll share it a little bit later in the service. I said that the first time around. I forgot to share that, didn't I? But uh, oops. Well, maybe I'll remember for y'all. But uh, uh, chances are in English you would have never heard the second verse of it. After his death, four more verses were written. Really, really a long song. But as you normally hear it on the radio today, you hear three verses of this song. Uh, one oddity about it today is... As I said, it was written in Latin, as you would expect for the Catholic Mass. But today, when you hear it sung on the radio, you hear it sung almost as frequently in Latin as you do in English. I can only think of two or three Christmas songs that are still performed in Latin that are very popular. But you will certainly uh, recognize the song today, known by both its Latin title, which comes from the, the first line of the song, Adeste Fidelis, and you know it better, the English version, O Come All Ye Faithful. And so today, I will perform for you in Latin, Adeste Fidelis. <laughs> Not. <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you. But today, I invite you to stand and sing with me and our praise team, this familiar carol, O Come All Ye Faithful.
be seated. Well, the song is uh, certainly an appropriate one for what we celebrate this season, an invitation to come and to worship and adore God come to earth, God the Son, who came as the babe of Bethlehem. And we can certainly see how the call 2,000 years ago was an appropriate one when you consider the opening line, O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. There, there weren't a lot of faithful 2,000 years ago. You realize there were not many people who knew God and were faithful to Him and who were still holding on to the promise that had been passed down through many generations for centuries, holding on to the hope and the promise that one day God would intervene and bring the help and the deliverance that His people longed for. And so it makes sense then that the call to, to pilgrimage, to go and to worship Christ was one to the faithful to come now full of joy and with a sense of victory and triumph that they would come, yes, it's finally happened and that makes sense. But it's interesting when you bring that into our context, the call, come all you faithful, joyful and triumphant. Now, there are some here today that all of those words apply and it's really nice when we can say all of those words fit my life. That I am full of faith, that I am living with real joy, and I'm walking in victory. I'm experiencing you know, a life of faithfulness and joy and triumph. And aren't you glad for those seasons in your life and all of those things are true? And if that's where you are, praise God that that is the case. But the truth of the matter is, that song, with its opening lines, disqualifies many of us today, doesn't it? I mean, if we're really honest about it. Because in truth, for a lot of us, if, if we looked at our own lives, we'd have to say, well, maybe I don't feel so full of faith and full of joy and walking in victory. The words that describe my life might sound more like uh, doubt and discouraged or depressed or defeated that sometimes I feel joyful and full of faith, but right now maybe I'm not so much feeling that. And it's amazing how much the holidays can sort of feed those those feelings, those nagging things. This song, like a number of songs that we sing in worship, can sometimes feel like, ooh, I just disqualified myself by trying to sing that line. I can't sing that song. Do you ever feel that way when we're doing certain worship songs that you'll read the lyrics and go, I don't think I can say that with integrity? You know, so songs that make declarations that say, like, you know, Jesus, there's nothing I desire besides you. And I think, ooh, I don't think I can say that today. I mean, I really desire Jesus in my life, but if I'm tr truthful, there's a bunch of other things I desire too, in addition to Jesus. You know, songs that just declare, Lord, there's nothing I want to do but worship you. And I think I do want to worship Jesus, but there's some other stuff I want to do this week too. That it's like, oh, wow, I'm not sure I qualify to be able to say those words. Well, the opening words here may not sound like they fit us. If the call to Jesus is just a call to the faithful, the joyful, and the triumphant, then would you agree that a bunch of us might get left out today? Here's the good news. Jesus didn't come into the world to call the joyful, the triumphant, and the faithful. Jesus came to call a very different crowd. And I want to just sort of begin with very quickly answering that basic question of, so who is it that Jesus did call and does call today? And the answer is very straightforward. First of all, Jesus calls the weary and the burdened. In uh, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus understood that life wears us out. You ever feel like that? Does December ever make you feel like that? You're just in the middle of all that you have to do extra this month, that it just becomes wearisome, and Jesus got that. That the whole thing of, first of all, coping with your own sin, your own junk, and all the guilt and shame that that brings with it, that's exhausting, isn't it? And then add to that the weight of trying to hold family together or trying to find happiness alone and of trying to deal with your career and balancing your finances and just all the other stuff, dealing with health issues, dealing with aging parents, dealing with kids who get into trouble, just all the stuff of life. Anybody get tired? And Jesus said, if you're tired, if life is wearing you out, come to me. And he was actually going a step way beyond that. He understood that there was nothing more exhausting than religion had become in his day and as it often is today he, he described the religious leaders as people who just tie up heavy burdens and stack them on people's backs and he just basically said you people make me sick to the religious leaders because you you take people who are already burdened 
and you make their burden worse. You give them more to have to do, more rules to follow, more activities to go to, and what you offer them doesn't do anything to make their lives easier or better. You just make it worse. You make it more burdensome. And Jesus was saying, that's not what I do. I take people who have heavy burdens and I lift the burdens off of them and I make life better for them. I came for people who were weary and burdened. And secondly, Jesus calls sinners. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Aren't you glad this morning? Aren't you glad that Jesus came to call sinners? Now here's the thing that I forgot to share in the the first service. The second uh, verse of the song, Adeste Fidelis, you're not going to hear this one sung because it does not just roll off the tongue. But here's what it says, what uh, Wade originally penned in the second verse. God of God and light of light begotten, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God begotten, not created, O come, let us adore him. Yeah, that one just, that one just rolls off, doesn't it? <laughs> you see why they left that one out. It's actually rich with theology, but there is a thought. Yeah, some of you are wrinkling your brow going, what did you just say? There is a thought in the middle of that that is significant to what I'm saying right now. Where he says, Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. What's that about? I'll tell you what it's about. When you step back to consider the whole thing, that God is coming to earth. God the Son is coming to earth. He can come any way he wants to. If he wants to say, you know, transporters ready, Scotty, beam me down. He can just show up, grown up Jesus. He can come any way he wants to, and he chooses instead to show up as an embryo, as a fetus, as a tiny baby being carried by a sinful woman. He, chose, he chooses to appear then as, as a newborn baby who's going to have to be taught right from wrong by a sinful man and woman. Oh, how weird is that? We're going to have to teach God right from wrong. You realize that's a part of the reality of the incarnation, that Jesus had to learn how to walk and talk. He had to learn what was right and what was wrong from a sinful man and woman. And he just gets to the heart of this, Wade does, with this verse in saying, he did not abhor the thought of being carried in Mary's womb, though Mary was a sinful woman. Because that was the embodiment of his mission. God, who is holy and who has nothing to do with sin, said, I'm going to step completely into the human experience. I'm not only going to pay the price of sin, carry the weight and the penalty of sin, but I am going to allow sinful people to be my parents, to be my brothers and sisters. I'm going to allow myself to be in a position of dependence where all of my nourishment and care for a season is going to come in the womb of a sinful woman, and I'm not going to hate that. I'm going to love it because I love Mary just like I love every broken, sinful human being because that's what I've come into the world for. I've come for sinful people. And that, friends, that mission of Jesus, that is not for the healthy. You realize, by the way, that church in America through most of my life has tended to attract healthier people. And, and that's who feels most comfortable in most churches is the healthiest people that don't have any real open problems for the world to see. And so on Sunday morning, most of what you'll see in most churches is the healthiest looking people in the community getting together for some songs and a lecture from a preacher. You see that, don't you? And Jesus said, no, this is not who I've come for. I have come for those who are sick. I have come for those who really are messed up with the problems of sin. And because of that... That's why here at Freedom, you will always hear us say, it doesn't matter what your hang-up is. It doesn't matter what your issue is. You are so welcome here. We're glad that you're here. We don't have a hang-up with you being here. And you could let everything out, and we still are going to be glad that you're here. You know, your problem might be that you are the biggest gossip in town, and you just cannot shut your mouth. We're glad you're here anyway. We really are. It may be that it's not what comes out of your mouth, but what you put in your mouth that's the problem, and you are a glutton. We're glad you're here. You'll really fit in. It may be that the biggest problem that you have is your moral purity, and you lost count of how many people you've slept with and been with. You carry the shame of that. We are so glad that you're here. You may have a major issue with alcohol or drugs. Man, we're glad you came might be that you've got a closet issue that you don't want anybody to know that you know there's a porn addiction and that's been an ongoing thing in your life. We are just so glad that you would be at freedom. You belong here. 
It may be that, that you struggle with a thing that carries such a stigma, and unfortunately the church has been so cruel because you struggle with same-sex attraction. And people have called you names and treated you like you're, you're some kind of freak because of that. And we just want to say to you, man, we are so honored that you would choose to come to freedom. This is a place for you to belong and be accepted. And anytime I say things like what I'm saying right now, there are some people who get a little nervous and they're like, wait a minute, are, are you somehow endorsing these sins and saying that they're okay? No, not in the least. There's no sin that's okay. We're not celebrating our sin We're celebrating the fact that even though we struggle with things like this, God loves us and is transforming us. And there is a place for us to belong where we can look at one another and say, it's okay that you're broken and dealing with the stuff that you're dealing with because I'm broken too and I'm dealing with my own pack of issues. And you can just know that you're not judged here because I know that we may struggle with different sins, but at the heart of it, there's no difference between your sin and mine. And it's not that we get together and go, oh, praise God, we're just a bunch of jacked up people and that's just what we do. We just get together and just acknowledge how messed up we are and that's all we do. No! We accept each other because we know that we're all messed up, but we celebrate the fact that we not only can belong, but we can be changed by the power of God's Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of us and addresses these things that are broken in us so that we don't have to live the rest of our lives with the same hang-ups and and issues. We won't leave the way that we show up as believers. So Jesus didn't come for the faithful, the joyful, or the triumphant. He came for the broken, the sinful, the needy. We, we could create our own new verse to the song that maybe would say, Oh, come all ye sinners, weary and burdened. That would be fitting, wouldn't it? That's who Jesus came for. Well, the good news today that is the heart of what I want to share with you is Jesus came for the broken, the needy, the sinful, and he didn't just come to save us from our sins. He came to transform our human experience so that we truly are a different people. We may come full of doubt, discouraged, defeated, depressed, all of those things, but he does not leave us there. And so using the opening line of this song, I want to remind you of three of the basic things that Jesus enables us to do if we come to him. And if we let him begin to change us from the inside, and the first one, as the song would remind us, is that Jesus enables us to live full of faith. Now, I've noticed that church people in church do not like to talk about their doubts. I mean, that's, that's a little bit like, you know, one of the closet sins, right? There. Oh, we don't like to share, you know, that we've got doubts. I was a little bit surprised when I said in the early service, am I the only person that still at times struggles with real major doubts? I was amazed at how many people raised their hands. I, there are moments where major doubts still enter my mind. I have been a believer for a long, long time, close to 40 years. And doubt can still be an issue. Doubt still is an issue at times. Now, it's one thing when we just doubt a specific promise of God. It's another thing when doubt comes in the form of just questioning everything. You ever just have those moments where instead of being full of faith, where you go, what if we're not right? What if, what if God isn't real? What if... The Bible isn't true. What if, if there is a God, what if he's not the God who's revealed himself in Jesus or, or through the Scriptures? What, what if we're wrong about the whole deal? Oh, man, I mean, in those moments, even if it's just for a few seconds, it's like, oh, my goodness, could a, could a Christian really think like that? Do you ever have doubts like that? I know a lot of people say, oh, no, I never doubt like that. Well, good for you. I'm glad. Glad you never have. I can't say that. I, you know, doubt has at times been a real issue in my life. And here's the cool thing I can tell you. Jesus is the one who has authored and who will finish our faith. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, Let us look only to Jesus, the one who began our faith and who makes it perfect. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. When you struggle with doubt, if you're like me, in those moments, it's like, oh my goodness, could God really love me when I'm when I have basic questions about him and who he is and if he's real and if his word's real and all that, it, if I have questions about that, surely that makes me far off and distant from God. Let me just let some of the air out of the balloon on that issue. If you belong to Christ, he is not uptight about your doubts. He is not worried about your questions. He's not like, 
offended that you would ask questions. The truth of the matter is, he is great at taking questions, sincere, heartfelt questions about who he is and his character and his word and transforming those into faith. The truth of the matter is that he is the author of your faith and the perfecter of your faith. That takes some of the pressure off of you and me, doesn't it? Because we kind of came into the equation thinking that we were the one that started our faith, didn't we? I mean, didn't, didn't, don't you sort of feel like this is your deal? I mean, God did his part. Now my deal is I've got to come and I've got to bring a lot of faith into the equation and I've got to increase my faith. The writer of Hebrews says, you don't get it. Jesus is the author of your faith. He is the pioneer of your faith and he is the one who is perfecting your faith. Oh, well, if that's the case, I feel a whole lot better about this because I am much more confident in his ability to grow a significant faith in me than I am in my own ability to develop a meaningful faith. Now, He's going to use some things to grow my faith that I can either cooperate with or I can miss out on. And that's going to determine in large part whether I have a growing mature faith. His word is one of them. I mean, you know, Romans ten seventeen says, So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If I'm not in the word, my faith is going to be puny. It just is. It's kind of like saying, oh, Jesus, I really want to know you. I don't want to have to read the Bible where I'm going to actually get to know you in a personal way, but I really want to know you. No, you've got to be in the Word. The Word feeds our faith. But I'll tell you what else is going to grow your faith. Time. Over the long haul, as you walk with God and you see His faithfulness, you see Him steadily loving you and supplying what you need. It's not one grand moment of revelation nearly so much as it is just the testimony of time of just the faithfulness of God in your life that you look back and just go, wow, there is something that has solidified in my heart as I've just watched God be who he promised to be. And I have seen him come through. I've seen him answer prayers. I've just seen him be steady, loving, and a faithful father. And real faith emerges over time from that. But there's one other aspect of that I want you to consider. And that is God is going to... to author and perfect a deep faith in you in large part through the pain, setbacks, and difficulties that you go through in life. Because those are the things more than anything else that God will use to really deepen your faith. That's like the fast track towards a deeper faith, isn't it? And this is the part nobody wants to go, yes and amen. We don't get excited about this because it's not fun. The stuff that's going to stretch your faith the most is when you go through the hard stuff and you really desperately need God. When you go through real loss, somebody dies, a relationship ends, a job ends, doors are closed. And isn't it crazy how the feeling of those things is intensified so much when they happen right at the holidays? You ever notice that? I mean, we know that instinctively. When you hear somebody dies in December, and man, do people die in December. Talk to anybody who works in the funeral home business. They will tell you there are so many more people who die right at the holidays than any other time of the year. You think that's a coinkydink? I don't. We feel it so much more heavily, and it's like, oh, man, the, forevermore, this death and this loss will be associated with the holidays, and now instead of that bringing joy, it's going to bring a sense of loss and sadness. Well, it can. Loss and and setbacks, pain, and difficulty, they can deflate your faith. They can diminish your faith, or they can develop your faith. And it's up to you. Because God wants to take the most painful things that you go through, and he wants to walk with you through that, and you have a much stronger, deeper faith as a result of that. I just think in my own experience, I was just reflecting on it this week, I haven't lost that many people who are close to me, but if I were to map out the 10 or 20 people who I've been closest to that have had the greatest impact on my life, only a few of them have ever died. And of that very, very small number, I think one of them died on Christmas morning and another one died on Good Friday and I did his funeral on Easter Sunday. And I just think, and if I took the time, I could elaborate on some other losses that happened on the holidays. And many of you could share the same thing. It's... I think in some ways the enemy likes to try and exploit that. And it's like, I want to take something really good and turn it into a dark and painful memory. Well, God wants to take that and use it to perfect a deep faith in you. God will use those things to take a heart that's full of doubt and uncertainty and through the real pains of life as Christ walks with you through that. You see his provision and you feel his nearness like never before in those times and a deep faith develops from that. Do you know what I'm talking about?
Are y'all with me? All right. Second thing that, that Christ enables us to do is to have constant joy. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. The angels announced in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, to the shepherds on that night of Jesus' birth, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause what? Great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, it's easy to read that and go, well, of course, a baby had just been born. God just arrived in the world. Of course, that's a source of great joy. But what does that mean for me today? It means the same thing. Jesus' arrival and His work in the world is a source of constant great joy and there just seems like a great disconnect between that idea and the average christian's experience doesn't it if you don't think so go to most any church you want to on the eastern shore at the 11 o'clock hour and stand on a platform like this and look at most church audiences and i'll tell you what you'll probably come to the conclusion of you will think that there is somebody in the lobby who is passing out lemons for people to suck because there are sourpusses all over the room I am not kidding you. It is crazy on Sunday mornings. There is no more sour-looking group of people than what assembles in so many churches that you know come in and are singing songs of, of worship and adoration about the greatness of God. And you look at their faces, oh, great our God. Sing with me. Woo, that's a lot of Christian joy right there. A lot of Christians sucking lemons is what that is. What's the disconnect? Now, I really do think that for a lot of people, because of what we have seen as our picture of Christianity, that is lemon-sucking Christians, that is the, you know, well, Christianity ain't much fun, but at least it got us out of hell. And that's pretty much all there is to it. And that is, I am convinced, that is like a major part of the, what's wrong with much of the, the modern American experience of Christianity is Jesus is a, is a fire insurance policy. I'm grateful for Jesus. I'm so glad he went to the cross, died for my sins, and rose from the dead so I don't have to go to hell. And that's why I'm a Christian, primarily. So I don't have to worry about dying. I get to go to heaven and play a harp and sing with a choir and be with Jesus forever when I die. And it won't be hell. Although choir practice forever in heaven might be a little hellish, but it won't be the fire of hell. Our view of heaven is a little skewed, by the way, you know. That is not why Jesus came. That is like a wonderful extra. Man, there's a bug in both services that's been driving me crazy. Get out of here. That is not the first and foremost reason that Jesus came was so you could get out of hell. Jesus came so you could experience the reality of belonging to God, living as a son or a daughter of God in the family of God, in intimate fellowship with Him and with His power in your life and with real joy in your life. And unfortunately, we've bumped into a bunch of sourpuss Christians that thought, no, being a Christian means getting rid of all the fun stuff in your life. It means going to church a lot. It means being serious about life. And I mean... When we were outsiders looking in, do you remember what Christianity looked like when you were on the outside looking in? Did it look like a life filled with joy? Uh-uh. It didn't, did it? I mean, maybe at some point you got to the point you experienced some Christians who were walking with Christ and living with real joy, but for a lot of us it's like, hmm, I think I want to sow my wild oats now because obviously I ain't going to have much fun when I get in there with them. So I better get some joy first and then I'll settle down and live like a Christian. That is not what the Bible reveals. The angels said, we have come to bring you news that's going to be a source of great joy for all the people because when Jesus comes in the world and when Jesus comes in your life, you can have constant, unending joy. Now, I've just made fun of the sourpuss Christians who live like, you know, I tell you what they live like. They live like they've got a version of the Bible with a different ending than mine has. We win, by the way. I mean, if you hadn't been to the end lately, let me just tell you, we win. Christ is redeeming the world. He is victorious. There are a lot of people who live like, well, I'm just trying to hang on until either Jesus comes back or after all these bad things finish happening, I can finally die and go to heaven praise Jesus. 
Woo, sign me up for that life. Jesus really wants us to live with an abiding joy. Now, I've poked fun at, at people who, who live real sour and low and down. But I'll tell you who I'm more afraid of than sour Christians. And that is the happy, happy, joy, joy, loving Jesus, happy all the time Christians. They freak me out. And if any of you are that, I ain't coming to your Christmas party. Because you scare me. Because I know it's not real. The truth of the matter is, having the constant abiding joy of Christ in your life doesn't make you a cheerleader for Jesus that's just spear fingers all the time. Everything just makes me happy, happy, happy. I just lost my job. Praise Jesus. My mother just died. Praise the Lord. Look, we know that God can use bad things for good. But somehow we've twisted that concept into thinking, oh, as Christians, we're supposed to be like this all the time. You're not. God made you an emotional being, and a part of the range of emotions that he gave you were sadness, grief, disappointment. Those weren't the results of the fall. Those were designed by God. That you, I mean, in a sense, yeah, it's a spinoff from the fall, but it's not because you're a bad person that you experience those things. God wired that into you because you're supposed to be able to cope with loss and sadness you're supposed to experience grief and have times of sadness and you don't do this yippee 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 when that's going on the truth of the matter is there's a difference between joy and happiness and i've heard people say that all my life and struggle to come to terms with the meaning of it but I, i'll tell you what the heart of it is if we could overgeneralize it it boils down to this happiness is a positive emotional response to what's happening around us, generally speaking. I feel good and positive about the things that are happening around me. I'm happy. Joy is an abiding thing that comes from Jesus living in me. And Him giving me something that's not just a positive emotional response. To, to say it a different way, happiness depends on happenings, and joy depends on Jesus. Happiness is my emotional response to what's happening around me. Sometimes what's happening around me is good, and I'm just like, oh, that's so cool, and it's exciting, and I, I feel great about that. But you know what? Sometimes what's happening around me is sad. It's disappointing. It's troubling. And it's not more Christian to go, well, let's just say praise the Lord anyway and pretend like we're happy. No, there's nothing particularly Christian about that. There's something terribly phony about that. Jesus bringing joy in your life doesn't mean that you walk around pretending to feel something other than what you feel. We just need to come to terms with the fact that I can feel sadness, I can feel grief and loss and disappointment and still not lose my joy. I'll have an emotional response to what's going on around me, but you know what? It doesn't take away my joy. I've been through some really hard stuff in the past two or three years. Some of you have been through harder stuff than I have. And there were moments where I haven't sometimes... Weeks and months when I wasn't happy about what was going on around me, it did not steal my joy. So what's the difference between this joy that comes from Jesus on the inside and just this, ah, life's good and everything that's happening is good? Well, Paul wrote a letter that got to the heart of this. The little book of Philippians, if you haven't read it lately, take 15 minutes and, and read it this week. Philippians is known as the, the joy book. It's a little four-chapter, three-page letter that he wrote from prison of all places where he had been for years when he wrote it and if you read it i mean from start to finish he is beside himself full of joy and along the way he sort of unpacks three key parts of of what it takes it's almost like the recipe for living a life of just constant joy and if you've if you've zoned out somewhere along the way i want you to dial in with me right here because this may be the most important part of the message for you and understanding, okay, how do I get this kind of joy? How do I live with an abiding joy in my life? I want to just use a, a simple acronym and say, you know, J-O-Y equals today C-O-P. I know usually when we see a C-O-P, that makes us not joyful but very afraid, you know. But today, we're going to let C-O-P, COP, remind us of what joy stands for. Those three letters. The C stands for contentment. Paul, in this letter to the Philippians, 
spoke of three things that were at the heart of his joy. And the first one was contentment. He said, I know what it is to be in need. How many of you really have experienced major need in your life? I'm talking about to the point that you didn't know how you were going to keep the lights turned on. You didn't know how you were going to pay the rent or the mortgage. You didn't know how you were going to buy groceries. Anybody in here ever been? Ah, some other people can say, I know what it is to be in need. Paul said that. And he says, and I know what it is to have plenty. Probably all of us have lived in seasons like that. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. At that point, don't you want to say, come on, Brother Paul. Well, please tell us that secret. Well, he does. He says, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, here it is. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, we've heard that. That's like one of the most familiar verses in all the New Testament. Nobody ever wants to quote Philippians 4.13 tied to Philippians 4.12, do they? You know, again, it's kind of like, happy, happy, happy. I can do all things through Christ. That means I'm supposed to be victorious all the time, and I've always got plenty. (laughs) Paul said, here's the secret to contentment. Whether I've got plenty of money in the bank, plenty of food on the shelf, everything's going great, or whether things are really bad. Regardless of what's happening on the outside, I have real joy because there is a contentment in my heart in knowing whatever happens with plenty or with nothing in hand. I can, I can survive. I can thrive. I can do all things. Why? Because Christ is with me. He is in me. He is giving me strength. He's always going to take care of me. So I may look in the checkbook and go, ooh, that could be a source of major stress and, and you know, waking up in the middle of the night. I could look at my job situation and say, hmm, major reason for worry there. Whatever the circumstance, I could be alarmed. Paul said, you know what, I've just learned I can be content in any of those things because I'm not going through it alone. Christ is in me. And I can have victory in all of those things because Christ is going to see me through that. He's going to make a way. I know he's going to give me. He's already committed to me. Whatever I need for the day, he's going to provide that day. Everything that I'll need. He's going to give me on that day. And I can be content with that. Okay, so what does that really mean for you in your situation? Does that mean you just go, all right, I hate my circumstances, I hate my life, and I'm supposed to be content. So I guess I'll just sit here and let it be what it is, be content. No, that's not what it means. Contentment means that you decide not to let your heart stay tied up in knots and troubled about whatever's going on around you. Because when you boil it all down, there are only two sets of things that are happening in and around you. The things you can control and the things you can't control. Right? (laughs) I mean, everything that's happening around you, good or bad, is one of two things. It's stuff you can control and stuff you can't control. Here's what contentment does. Contentment says, there's a lot that I can't control and some of it I don't like. But I can't control it anyway. And so I'm just going to let my heart be at rest because I can get tied up in knots about it and I still didn't control it. Or I can just have a heart that's at rest that goes, I can't control that. I can't undo the bad decisions other people have made. I can't can't control choices that people are going to make that might affect me. I can't control that. God can. I can't. So why should I sit here and fret about that? I'm going to let my heart be at rest about that. Now there are some other things that I can control and some of them are not like they need to be. So even with a contented and a heart at rest, I can say, with Christ's help, I'm going to do something about that. At the end of this month, the beginning of next month, a bunch of you will do that. A bunch of us will look at our lives and we'll go, I gained 10 pounds during the holidays. I don't like the way my body looks. I need to do something about that. Okay, that's great. You can do that with a contented heart. You can say, I need to be healthier. I need to eat healthier. I need to exercise more, whatever. I'm not getting my heart tied up in knots about that. I'm going to make the changes that I can make. I want a stronger marriage. I want to get out of debt. Whatever. I I want to address these things. I'm not going to get tied up in knots about that. I'm going to live with a a settled, contented heart where I'm going to work on the things that I can control that need to be addressed. You know what this sounds a lot like to me? Sounds a lot like the serenity prayer, doesn't it? Lord Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. The reason some people were quoting that with me is because we do that every week and celebrate recovery. That's such an important truth. 
Contentment is the first building block for a life of steady joy. The second piece is O, and the O stands for optimism. Now I want to ask you, when you look at your own life, do you think of yourself generally as an optimistic person or a pessimistic person? Do you generally, when you're thinking about the future and how things are going to work out, are you the one that sits there and goes, I know it's going to be bad. Things may be going pretty well today, but I know tomorrow is going to probably be worse. You know? Are you the person who believes, hey, no matter how, I don't know if y'all can see them, but they're, I'm realizing now, I think it's out of these flowers. <laughs> I just now realized it's the flowers, and there are a lot of them. Are you the person who thinks that there's going to be more bugs or that these bugs are going to go away? <laughs> Which are you? Are you an optimist or a pessimist? It's just a simple deal. Pessimism does not fit a believer. It doesn't. A person of faith who follows Christ, a pessimistic outlook does not fit your faith. It doesn't work. I mean, think about the whole deal. Do you believe that you belong to God? Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that God is in control? Do you believe that God wants the best for his kids? That doesn't mean nothing bad will ever happen to you, but it has to leave you with an optimistic outlook on life. If you think you belong to God, God is good, God is in control, and God wants the best for you, how could you have a pessimistic outlook? And yet we're, some of us are like, but I do. <laughs> it means there's a major disconnect from, between what you call your faith and your actual outlook on life. A believer ought to be optimistic. I mean, it's God who says in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. It's plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. That's good stuff. Paul, again, in his letter of joy in Philippians 3, says, Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Amen to that. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. Do you hear the hope in that? Do you hear the optimism? Paul saying, and, and I mean, again, remember the context. This is a guy who's in prison, not for something wrong that he did. False accusations landed him in prison, and he's been there for years. This is one of the prison epistles where he's saying, you know what, forget what's behind me. Now, if somebody accused you of stuff that you haven't done, and as a result you get arrested, and you spend years in prison, you've been snatched from your family, you've been snatched from your job, your church, the things that are familiar, and you've spent years in prison, you think you might be a little bitter? You think you might spend a little bit of time rehearsing the past and remembering the names of all the people who were a part of you being done in? You know what Paul said? Forget it. It's, it's in the past. I can't undo it. I'm forgetting what's in the past. I am straining toward what's ahead. This is a man in a crude ancient prison. And he said, I am so excited about the future. I am so looking forward. I am pressing on for the prize of what God has prepared for me. God's got good stuff ahead. And I am I'm excited about it. I'm optimistic about it. That is Christian hope. And Paul said the three greatest things that we can have are faith, a personal trust in the God who is in control and who loves us, hope, it is an optimistic belief about what God has for the future, and love, faith, hope, and love. These things are a choice. Are you going to choose to be content? Are you going to choose to have an optimistic outlook about the future? Now, you may look at your situation and go, but... It's not an optimistic situation. My past experience has, has not been good. Let me say, that's part of the problem. Everybody here has some junk in your past that hadn't been good. I mean, I look around the room, and you all look like the first service crowd. You're a good-looking group, but I don't see anybody that I think has been immune to really bad stuff happening in your life. Now, the irony is, I think a lot of us feel like, I've really had a lot more problems than everybody else around me. But if we had time to tell our stories, you'd be shocked at how much bad stuff has happened in people's lives. And really, the biggest difference between people who are full of hope and optimism and people who are just stuck 
with the disappointment and the frustration and the anger and the bitterness and all the rotten junk that sets in. The biggest difference is not, well, one person had a lot of bad stuff and the other one didn't. The biggest difference is one person is... Their life is like the inside of an automobile with a great big windshield and they are looking ahead and they've got a little rearview mirror that they can can look back and remember people from the past and lessons from the past, but they are focused primarily on the future. And the other half of the crowd, it's all reversed. Instead of a windshield, they've got a gigantic rearview mirror with one little slit cut to try and see the future and they're just consumed with seeing the bad stuff that happened in the past, and it's got you locked there. You can't look to the future. There is no optimism about the future. All you can do is rehearse the past because you're looking at a mirror. What you need to do is tear down the mirror. You need to stop rehearsing the junk. I'm sorry that it happened. I'm sorry that it happened in your life. I'm sorry loss has happened in my life, but it's your decision. Are you going to stare at the rearview mirror? Are you going to play those tapes again and again? There's an enemy who will encourage that. There's an enemy who will cue those tapes up for you. But it's up to you whether you will allow yourself mentally to rehearse that same old junk, the worst setbacks, the worst times of you being victimized, whether you will rehearse that or will you rehearse the promises of God and hold on to the hope that there is a good God who sets things in order and that He has planned a future for you that is full of hope and good things? It's up to you. I know bad stuff has happened. It's come in a lot of different packages. For some of you, it's the disappointment of what's going on with your kids. And it's broken your heart again and again. And you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. And for some of you, it's been a spouse that was unfaithful or that quit loving you and left you. Or it's parents who got a divorce or a job that's just, you know, been rotten to you. And now you've been left high and dry. We could just go on and on with the list. Health issues and all of this, the disappointments of life. Somebody that you loved and died and buried that you never should have had to see them die. That they should have outlived you. Just all the things that hurt And some of that happens to all of us. Are you going to stay stuck rehearsing that? Or are you going to believe that a good God plans things for the future that aren't going to keep you stuck with that, that aren't just going to be poisoned with constant bad, negative setbacks? It's up to you whether you'll stay stuck with the bad or if you'll choose to hold on to hope and believe in God for a better future. And then the last piece in the COP is contentment, optimism, and the last word is peace. In Luke 2... Verse 14, the angels, when they filled the heavens, the, the proclamation of praise to the shepherds was glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Again, I, I realize that for a lot of us, the, the deal is that's just it. I don't have peace. Sure, if I could be content and if I could have hope and optimism instead of pessimism and if I could have peace, great. Joy would be the result of all those things. Here's the deal. You can have peace. For the person in the room who's like, I, I don't have any peace in my heart because of all the stuff that's going on that it's not good. It's, and, and there's stuff continuing to happen that's not good. And I don't have peace. There's, there's a lot of stuff that's uncertain right now about my finances, my family, my future, my health, loved one's health. And, and you just don't feel peace because of that. Paul said, here's what you do. With all of that stuff that's robbing you of joy, Here's how you trade that in for peace. Don't worry about any of these things. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all that He's done. Then what? You will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. It's just such a, a very simple thing. He's saying all this other stuff that's going on around you that you can't control, that gets your heart tied up in knots, what do you do with it? You just deliver it to God every day. First Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your cares and anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Isn't that such a wonderful passage? All the things that get your heart tied up in knots that rob you of joy, don't ignore them. Don't pretend like they don't exist. Just every time it comes to mind, instead of you sitting there and stewing about it and trying to figure it out, how you're going to fix it, you just immediately deliver that over to God's hands. That situation, that loved one, you just voice it to God. 
Thank you, God, that that's your deal. I don't have to fix it. Thank you, God, that my child is yours. I don't have to fix them. I can't. Thank you, God, that my marriage is yours. Thank you, God, that my finances are yours. Thank you that you're my supply. And he said, there is this amazing exchange that takes place. You hand your junk off to God, and you know what he gives you in return? Peace. And he says it's a peace that's beyond understanding. Do you know why it's beyond understanding? Because it doesn't make sense. Because when you are in a hellish situation where it's like, I think I'm fixing to go under financially. I think they're going to take my house. I think I'm going to lose my job this week. I think that the report from the doctor is going to be really bad this week. And it's like everything says you should be alarmed. You should be really worried. And you look in the mirror and go, but I'm not. I've got peace. That doesn't make sense. People are supposed to worry when all this is going on, when there's so much uncertainty, and yet, I don't get it. I'm not worried. It's because this divine exchange has happened. When you give it to God in prayer, God gives you something back. He gives you peace. And when you wrap peace together with optimism and just a settled, contented heart, you know what all that equals? C-O-P equals J-O-Y. An abiding joy that comes from within regardless of what's happening around you. Contentment. Hope and optimism and peace. That's lasting joy. And then the last piece that I'll mention is, you know, come all you faithful, joyful, and triumphant. Jesus enables us to live in victory. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven says, But thank God He gives us victory over sin and death through the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. We've celebrated that in communion today. I mean, it would be a scary and depressing outlook if Jesus just showed up to show us what God was like and to teach us how to be better people. Because if that's all he did, if not for the cross and what he accomplished there, we'd still have every reason in the world to live with just a sense of gloom and despair and a fear of death because you'd be going to hell and I would too. He's going, thanks be to God, sin is conquered, the power of sin is conquered, the effect of sin is conquered, we don't fear death anymore, we have victory over these things. That is awesome, that's huge. But I am so glad that the scripture teaches way beyond that, that the victory that Christ came to allow us to walk in doesn't begin at the grave. It begins here and now. Romans 8.37, such a great passage, Paul said, No, despite all these things, despite all what things? Well, what he said in the last verse or two where he's, he's just mentioned trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. And he says, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. That's good news. But I have a funny feeling that for some people that rings a little hollow. There are some people, there are a lot of people who are believers you know and trust Christ. But this whole thing of being triumphant, living in victory, it rings hollow for you because the biggest hurt, the biggest hang-up, the biggest secret thing that you carry around, you've prayed about it a million times. You've believed God to fix it. And here you are, still hung up, still hurting, still in bondage, still at the same place that you were a year ago and a long time ago. So how do you live in triumph? How does Jesus give you victory over those things? I, I want to just share a story that initially may sound a bit odd, and I, I, I really struggled with whether or not to share this today because it's, it's fairly personal. But my family, my family of origin, has a, an ugly, dark secret, and it is that there is a monster in our family, as much of a, of a monster as, as a human can be. I had an aunt who was like a member of my immediate family. Um, she was a single parent all of her adult life, and um, it was my mom's sister, and God just created a special bond between her and me. And, and so in my immediate family, it was my mom and dad, and I had two brothers, so three boys, my parents, but Though we were a family of five, we were really a family of seven because God just made my grandmother 
and my aunt, a part of our immediate family. We did everything together. We took vacations together, did Christmases and everything together. Just And I shared a really special bond with my grandmother and my aunt. They were like you know, second and third mom to me. This aunt was a woman of deep, very real faith. But she carried a horrible secret for a lot of years. We didn't know it for a long, long time. And I will never forget, 15 years ago on a Monday morning, I was at work, and my parents called because my aunt had finally, for the first time, voiced the secret in her life. And her secret was that her son had been abusing her, horribly abusing her for years. She was in her 70s at that time. And she had spent most of her adult life being abused by her son. Now, we always knew he was a... He was a beast. He tormented us as kids. He was quite a bit older than me and my brothers. She had been victimized in long seasons of her life in ways that, as any good abuser knows to do, he would, he would harm her in ways that would not show where you could see it. His blows would be above the hairline, below the neck, so that all the scars and stuff that he left, she could hide. And she kept these things a secret because she somehow had internalized that, that it must be her fault that as a single parent she had failed, she was responsible, so she felt like she was supposed to deal with this and she would just pray about it. Well, my cousin had just recently been in jail for beating the daylights out of his most recent wife, going to jail for that, and she had gone and bailed him out, as enablers will do. Enablers will run to get their kids out of trouble. And even though she had been victimized by him for so many years, she let him come into her home because he didn't have any other place to go. If you're an enabler, don't get sucked into that. Sometimes that's the best place for somebody to go is no place and have to hit the ground hard. She took him in, and the abuse, start, it started again, and it, it had escalated to the point that she finally blew the whistle to my parents what was going on because she knew she was going to die at his hands. The night before, she had pinned him. She, he had pinned her to the wall and put a butcher knife to her throat, screaming at her and cursing at her and daring her to flinch so he'd have an excuse to cut her throat. And she finally got so afraid that she contacted my parents, who lived in the same town, and, and finally just spilled her guts to them, told them what had been going on. So they called me. I said, I'll be there this afternoon. Give me time to make a couple of phone calls. I called my older brother in Huntsville. I said, I need you to meet me in Brundage today. We've got to deal with some issues. And I told him what was going on. He said, I will leave work now. I'll meet you there. He was five hours away. He said, I'll meet you this afternoon. I called an attorney friend to tell him what was going on and to say, what can we do from a legal standpoint? And he said, these are the steps you can take in terms of restraining orders. This is what you need to do. You need to take these steps. But he said, I just want to be honest with you. The law cannot protect your aunt. They, they just can't. They're not going to be there day and night. And somebody who has been this cruel to this many people is a very real threat that regardless of restraining orders that he, he's going to do what he wants to do. There's only one thing that will stop him. And that is people who care about her have to make him very afraid. They have to make him so afraid that he dare not touch her again. I said, understood. We can do, deal with that. So we met that afternoon. My dad, my older brother, and I, and ironically, their pastor, who was their closest friend and next-door neighbor. And we sat down, and we laid a plan. Just as it was getting dark, we went over to to my aunt's house where he was alone. And um, the pastor was able to get him to the door. We used him as a way to just get the door open and get his body in the door. And we, we truly functioned like a SWAT team that day. It's a bizarre SWAT team. You had two preachers, a chairman of deacons, and the town pharmacist. That was our SWAT team. <laughs> Not exactly who you want to call, probably, but we got business done that day. We, and we did. We, um, we, you know, this is the side of faith you don't often think of is when you actually have to go in and physically take control of a situation. I won't now or ever share the details of what happened in the next 20 minutes, but let me just say that we went in and we established control in a way that he will never forget. And part of what we explained to him that afternoon was, you will leave this town tonight. If the sun comes up in the morning and you're in this town, you will need the police. You will wish for the police 
you'll leave this town tonight and you won't come back. And when the sun came up the next morning, he was gone. And it's been 15 years and I've never seen him since. Now, you may say, that's a strange story. Why did you share that in church? I'll tell you exactly why I shared that in church. Because many of us live in our own way exactly where my aunt lived so many years of her life. She loved Jesus. She went to church. She did so many things right in her life. And yet there was this awful dark cloud that accompanied her everywhere she went because there was one dark secret that she carried alone. God wanted to give her victory and to free her from that awful suffering. And she couldn't be free until she shared that secret. And she let some other people stand with her and stand in for her and do for her what she could not do for herself. You see, when Jesus calls you, he doesn't just call you to have a relationship with him. He calls you to belong to the family. We started out today talking about the song that is the carol of the day, that is a song of pilgrimage. And we don't think of our lives in terms of pilgrimage, but we are all called to pilgrimage. Our whole life, Hebrews says, is a, is a great pilgrimage. And one thing you have to know about pilgrimage is you never go on a pilgrimage alone. You always have to do it in the company of others. You do it in community because pilgrimage is dangerous. Pilgrimage is tricky you're going to go into strange places and you have to have other people around you to help you along the way and my aunt learned that lesson in a very real way the day that she shared her secret she was freed from that she got to live for years free from that awful abuse that she had had to deal with friends some of you have have lived an outwardly normal life but there has been one secret in your life one thing you have kept hidden you've prayed about it you've been convinced that you and jesus alone were going to handle this and you haven't walked in triumph because you haven't exposed yourself to the help that god wants to bring to bear in your situation you've got to involve some other pilgrims in this you've got to be willing to share with some people close to you that you can really trust what you're dealing with because sometimes it's only with their help that you can be free it's only with their help that you can be victorious because they are God's expression of His power and help and relief in your life. Sometimes the help that they're going to bring is, is real practical and tangible in terms of, of recovery or, or you know, counsel or help in terms of resources. And sometimes the help that they're going to offer is going to look in a spiritual way very similar to what we did that day 15 years ago. That the enemy demonic enemy has come in and has set up camp in your life in your family and is bringing harm and discouragement and repeated behavior that you can't control you can't get it under control and you can't get it out until the day that some people are allowed to know what's going on and they can step in for you and they can say to a monstrous enemy that can't be seen get out of town You've been here for the last time. Get out and don't come back in Jesus' name. And sometimes it is only when other people stand with you and stand in for you and in agreement say, be gone in Jesus' name that you can be free. And until you open up, you'll carry the secret, you'll carry the hurt, and sometimes you'll carry dysfunction and unhealthy behavior Jesus wants you to be full of faith he wants you to be full of joy and he wants you to live triumphantly but it's not a solo act he wants you to connect with other people he wants you to trust he wants you to open up and he wants to supply what you need would you join me as we bow together in prayer Jesus thank you for all the good things that you bring into our lives thank you for for your joy. Thank you for your provision and your presence, and we ask you today to supply what we need. I just want to ask you with heads bowed and eyes closed, if today you look at your own life and you say, I am in desperate need of just joy in my life again. I need my joy restored. I need today to begin to experience God's victory in my life. I realize that I'm not walking in victory. I want to be filled with faith and joy. I want to walk in victory would you just raise your hand? All I want to do is just pray for you. Today, are you just at a place that you need those things in your life? 
Father, I pray for each of these with hands uplifted. You know our hearts. And I ask you, would you please, please supply what's needed? Would you grant gifts of faith? Or would you give us contentedness and hope, real peace, lasting joy? Would you show us what we need to do to reach out to you and to those around us? And God, I pray that you'd supply exactly what's needed. Thank you that in Christ we have all that we need for life and godliness. And we call on you, Jesus, and pray these things in your name. Amen.